Hello, everyone. I'm Zhao Ang. Today, I invite、uh, Dermot Coney on Donahue to discuss about climate and energy collaboration between China and Australia. Dermot Coney or Donahue is assistant lecturer in Asia Studies at Monash University in Australia. He also teaches at the University of Melbourne. His research interests include the scientific collaboration between Australia and China, and how Australian universities. Manage the risks in international engagement, not only with China but also with other countries. Dermot, welcome to Energy Currents. Thanks, Ang. It's great to be here. First,、uh, let's talk about、uh, your idea of the climate energy collaboration between the two countries. How do you describe the collaboration between the two countries in the past two、uh, decades? Thanks. So I suppose my area of research sees university and science collaboration as a case study of the broader, basically state-based and country diplomatic links. So if we're going back twenty years, the science relationship has largely followed the sort of the deep economic linkages. China, like many countries, is Australia's largest trading partner, particularly with minerals and resources such as coal and iron ore and gas. So in many ways, Australia benefits from that. Relationship. So, since the mid two thousands,、um, there's been fairly strong economic relationship tensions. Basically, started to brew a little bit with Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister,、um, who is a sort of a global China expert, running to some tensions with China in the mid two thousand and sevens. Particularly, where the former conservative John Howard government sort of brushed aside any concerns over, say, human rights. Kevin Rudd was. More open about, for instance, the repressive tendencies sometimes of the Chinese government, while also trying to maintain those strong economic links.、Um, Kevin Rudd, when he was at the the Copenhagen Climate Conference, while there was a lot of hope in Australia and globally, obviously to to advance those those collaborations,、um, Kevin Rudd sort of criticised the Chinese delegation, who he saw as not being very helpful or engaging to the Australian cause. Um, basically, to promote decarbonisation, but it was from sort of the mid to late two thousands where there were stronger tensions, basically between Australia and and China. Even in the past fifteen years, that Australia China science boom, in particular on things like renewable energy, low carbon technologies, have really boomed.、Um, so there's been this huge rapid rise of collaboration between both countries,、um, and we can talk about it in a sec. But on things like carbon capture storage, renewable energy, solar panels. Um, and even moving into sort of hydrogen development as well. So just like Australia seeks to capitalise on the economic opportunities,、um, mm-hmm. in the same pace it's tried to bet, capture the basically the scientific opportunities that China presents Australia as well. We can go a bit more into detail about that as well. Yeah, when you talk about the the low carbon technology collaboration between two countries, you also mentioned the domestic politics in Australia because. A different party has different preference, different、uh, priority.、Uh, for the Austrian cons- Conservative Party, they may have some higher concern about the、uh, human rights and uh, and uh, international relations and the、uh, even geopolitical tension. And for the Liberal Party, for the、um, left wing party in Australia, they might have very strong concern about the climate collaboration and economic growth. But I, I want to、uh, just ask you. When you look back to the two decades collaboration between two countries, what kind of factors or、um, very important events、uh, you may think defining the country's relationship, 
the bilateral relationship. Mm. Yeah, so to, like you're saying, yeah, the, the Australian government, when um, Scott Morrison, the former Prime Minister, was uh, leader, he had called uh, basically for an independent investigation into the origins of COVID-19. Um, but before I get to that sort of, to come back onto that sort of growing tensions, one of the, so in the 2007 and eight global financial crisis, um, China in many ways was a major driver of Australia's continuing economic growth through its demand for minerals. Um, so Australia ended up being one of the only countries that didn't go through a recession due to that. So that was one of the main reasons, which I guess demonstrated the importance of the economic linkages for Australia that most, both major parties basically promote. Um, when the government changed in 2013 to the Conservative government, while they had previously mostly focused on the economic linkages, um, taking a very sort of pro-business approach with, with China, um, there are a range of factors that contributed to increasing um, basically tensions. One of those, like you're saying, in the past couple of years was the COVID-19. Um, I think there's greater scepticism in Australia, like many other countries of, of China and particularly Xi Jinping's more oppressive rule, which has gained sort of concern and the Australian government has responded to that. Um, when Malcolm Turnbull, another sort of the former Liberal leader as well, basically started to focus more on sort of foreign interference concerns in Australian political institutions, political parties um, and universities, which is what I focused on in my research. But basically, there were some high-profile cases of Ong Xiang Mo, who was connect, had connections to the Chinese government, um, basically trying to or using donations to change uh, the political, trying to change public policy in favour of basically Beijing's political um, objectives in like the South China Sea. There were also concerns about human rights, particularly in Xinjiang, um, through frequent media and public reports. Um, and another one was sort of the growing military um, strength of China, People's Liberation Army, increasing military modernisation. So there's this sort of range of factors um, that have contributed to growing concerns in Australia about, I guess, China's China's rise. And the former government has responded to those. They had things like a counter-foreign interference strategy, which basically tried to, um, it's trying to mitigate basically espionage, particularly from China. Um, in the university sector, there's a huge range of new regulations and policies basically to try to shape research in what we can call like the Australian national interest to mitigate national security risks um, and to ensure, I suppose, that the research that is particularly publicly funded uh, acts in, in favour of Australia. But also I think since, so if you see 2008 is sort of the key focus on the economic importance of, this, of China to Australia, which is still true today, like even in the context of political tensions, Australia, China is still Australia's largest trading partner by quite a long way. Um, but there have been lots more tensions between the Chinese and Australian government over, say, COVID, um, foreign interference concerns and defence and national security concerns. So, um, And the new sort of left-wing, centre-left government under the Labor Party has basically taken a very similar approach. But because we focus on the uh, climate and energy collaboration history between two countries and also the challenges for the future, so I want you to uh, narrow down our discussion to some specific te technologies like uh, solar PV, solar energy, and uh, uh, CCS, because these two technologies are very important. Uh, one, like the solar PV, has played a big role in decarbonizing the energy system around the world. And China has learned a lot 
from Australia because some Chinese scientists, they study in Australian university mm -hmm. and then move back to China to build up a gigantic uh, manufacturing facilities to produce solar PV selling around the world. And even for CCS, it's also very uh, significant in order to fulfill the a global carbon uh, emission reduction by 2030 if we want to uh, achieve a smoothie transition in the energy system. Yes, I find it quite interesting. So one, before we get very specific, the broad, basically Australia has rapidly expanded collaboration with China in STEM. So things that are very important for, you know, renewable energy and other other technologies like physics, engineering, maths. Um, China has been particularly important for Australia just because of the sheer numbers of, you know, STEM graduates, um, the amount of money that particularly from China, they are allowed to invest in collaboration in these technologies with Australia, um, new ideas, new partnerships, um, and basically those linkages. Because Australia has so many, I guess, Chinese students particularly, those linkages exist. So it's been a very important partner to, to develop. But speaking more specifically, there's quite a range of sort of Australian government and they partner with Chinese partners, basically, and the government to drive a lot of those key technologies. Um, and so obviously one of the main ways Australia has been responding to climate change, um, particularly to decarbonise its electricity sector. So still export a lot of fossil fuels such as coal and gas, but the focus has really been on decarbonising the electricity market, particularly with, say, solar solar PV. So I think Australia is about up to 30% of households will have solar PV. So that aim is always to make them more efficient um, and cheaper for domestic use. So there's like the Australia-China Science Research Fund, which has you know up to about a billion dollars of funding for projects between Australia um, and China because renewable energies are one of the key areas of focus. So the University of Melbourne, where I'm based, has a, a huge project based on making solar cells, sort of what they call low-cost flexible solar cells and infrared technologies to drive efficiencies um, and to make it cheaper. In terms of like carbon capture storage as well, there's been like a range of um, projects and collaborations. Uh, I know CSIRO and other universities such as where there are large mining towns um, and areas such as in uh, Western Australia and Newcastle, they have a lot of collaboration on between Australia on basically geological storage of carbon, carbon emissions. Um, the Australian Minister for Industry and Resources uh, in the past few months was talking about the opportunities to basically try to use carbon capture storage for export industries, particularly for liquid natural gas. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that is that using carbon capture storage just for electricity generation is probably going to be too expensive. Um, the profitability won't, won't, won't work that well, um, especially with the lowering cost of renewables, um, particularly solar and wind. Um, and so I think the focus will move more to, say, export industries such as coal and gas, which is still extremely profitable for Australia. Um, and I think that kind of reflects the funding that's been available in Australia. For that. I think the funding has moved more towards renewable energy. Um, so you had those solar, solar collaborations. I think they're more profitable um, and they're also politically popular. In Australia. But I think there are quite a lot of challenges at the moment. Like you're saying, there's more and more national security focus when it comes to science collaboration. So I think um, in the past few years, the Australian government has cancelled projects in engineering like nanotechnology and physics with, with Chinese collaborators, um, basically under, under um, national security concerns, under those large public funding grants. 
and I think it's expanding out. So traditionally, it's just been um, cancelled projects have basically just been those with direct military uh, applications, whereas now it's moving more broadly into technologies that have direct, like, competitive importance. Um, so Australia is linking up more with, say, the United States um, and other military partners, basically to, I think, decouple or reduce its reliance on China for those technologies such as solar, which are going to be so important economically um, and then also environmentally as the world sort of reduces greenhouse gas emissions and tries to decarbonise. So I think we can talk about a bit more um, like the diversification of science, but I think under policies like Australia has like a critical technologies policy where the government is going to invest sort of hundreds of millions of dollars into developing domestic science in things like artificial intelligence and quantum and also renewable energy. Um, I think that basically the aim of those is to diversify away from China to collaborate more with what the government calls like-minded partners, which basically mean traditional allies like the US, the UK, um, but also increasingly with other countries such as Japan and Korea. Yeah, I think uh, what I just mentioned is about sea change uh, between the two countries in terms of the collaboration of uh, climate and energy. And uh, apart from some historic strategic partner like US and the UK, as you mentioned about the, uh, the countries in the region, uh, like some OECD countries like Japan, Korea, or maybe some emerging uh, economies in Southeast Asia. So uh, can you uh, tell us uh, about how Australian strategy about the uh, international research collaboration in this area. Yeah, I think it's a really important period of time for Australia because, like I was saying, the collaboration in science has been going basically incredibly fast with China. Now it's starting to, I think, basically hitting a peak and will probably start to decline, like you were saying, because without that trust and if basically if there's national security concerns, it basically means that for a range of reasons, collaboration will decline. Firstly, there'll be less public funding from government, which isn't very important. Um, academics tend to respond to whatever public funding there is, just like universities. So if there's more public funds to collaborate with, say, the US or the UK, naturally academics are going to follow that, follow that money. So I think what I predict is that Australia is going to start to diversify more away from China. So the context, Australia already does a lot of, is internationally focused. It just has to be because it population of 25 million it, it's not like even like even china collaborates globally the us collaborates globally and the european union and they have populations you know, over 300 million people at least um so australia has to find other partners to develop science and especially for renewable energy where you rely on that cutting edge technologies in physics and maths and engineering um, so australia has been building starting to build up advanced um, a lot of those collaborations. So it already does a lot of collaboration with Europe, with the US, with the US, UK, New Zealand, um, and also across Asia as well. Um, so to focus on sort of traditional allies like the UK and the US, Australia has been developing more partnerships with the US, particularly through like the Quad, um, and also other renewable energy uh, partnerships. So, you know, project as well, where, you know, America, the US, uh, America, Australia, India, and Japan are looking to invest more in low carbon technologies um, to work out how they can make it more efficient and cheaper and to roll it out across the Indo-Pacific region, particularly in developing countries, and also to reduce their reliance on, on China for critical minerals 
and also to, to be able to source solar panels to make it more competitive um, in that area. There's also, you spoke heavily about Japan. So I think one of the interesting things about Japan that I've actually learned in the past 12 months is Australia actually does very little scientific collaboration with Japan. Um, and so to find, you know, new partnerships, Japan in many ways is the most obvious because, you know, the US, the UK, Australia already does a huge amount of collaboration. So how much more can you actually do? There's probably not actually that much room. Um, but Japan, like you're saying, cutting edge technologies, um, it's seeking to decarbonize and become carbon neutral by 2050. And so the Australian Japanese governments have beginning to basically develop partnerships. So I think the Australian government has committed about 150 million to a, a clean hydrogen trade program. Australia, Japan relies on Australian natural gas and other fossil fuels for its energy. So basically Australia and Japan are trying to replace those with clean energy through hydrogen. Um, Australian universities such as the University of Melbourne are developing like Japan engagement strategies, um, basically to, to diversify their linkages away from China to have more basically scientific and university engagement with Japan. So I think there's that those government that government funding, which I think will become more and more. Um, and then also you'd be pushed from universities to do that. So there's a lot of space. Other countries, very similar process with Korea. Again, a very large trading partner of Australia, but uh, scientific and university collaboration is quite limited. But very similar, Korea is seeking to become carbon neutral as well. Uh, and there's basically have been in 2021 partnerships between the Korean and Australian governments, again, to develop technologies like clean hydrogen, low emissions, iron ore and steel, hydrogen fuel cells, electric vehicles, all of these kind of low, low carbon technologies. So I think Australia is at the beginning of trying to diversify those linkages. There's going to be a lot of money coming through the pipeline. Um, but, and I imagine it will be successful because academics follow the money. Um, there's no real barrier or perhaps a small language barrier between the two countries. But I think when you're working on those, there's not that much of an issue. And as long as there's goodwill between both countries, there won't be a huge barrier. Yeah, but when we talk about the global dependence on China's uh, economic booming, uh, we may have to put the other two ongoing factors into consideration. The first mm -hmm. one is about China's declining economic growth. Secondly, mm -hmm. is about the global supply chain restructuring. I think uh, the China U.S. policy and uh, and the European policy uh, on electric vehicle manufacturing, they they try to restructure the supply chain to make their uh, supply chain more uh, secure, not depending on China so largely. Uh, I think a similar thing uh, in Australia, although Australia is not really uh, a big economy, but uh, when you talk about the collaboration with uh, the reliable partners in the region and the, uh, in, in the traditional alliance, I think Australia tried to secure its supply chain, uh, manufacturing supply chain, uh, also consistently with uh, US and the UK and the European countries. So if we put these two factors into consideration, maybe uh, the worry about declining collaboration with China is not that <laughs> in the high level, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think sort of on the first the first point about China's economic growth, I think it's prudent for Australia and other countries to diversify from China just because of the heavy economic reliance. So obviously Australia has benefited from rapid economic growth, 
Um, but in some ways it makes you a bit lazy because you think it'll happen forever and you don't think about the risks. So in the university sector, for instance, that was most obvious with the Chinese international students where you had this huge boom um, basically underpin the expansion of universities, but then the borders closed and there's been a huge challenge and budgetary losses. So I think diversifying makes quite a lot of sense. The other thing also with university and science collaboration is it's been underpinned by a very uh, sort of international outlook from the Chinese government and under Xi Jinping is moving more towards becoming more isolationist in many ways. And that all, you know, he wants to create, be self-sufficient in critical technologies as well. Um, and that basically is bad news for universities like Australia that have been relying on a very outward looking China to, to basically expand linkages and collaborations and be handing out huge amounts of money. So that dries up. Um, Australian universities, like many others, will be in trouble. So it is just completely prudent um, to be building those linkages with other countries and at the same time be reducing those national security or defence or um, strategic risks as well, um, particularly to align with, say, military objectives and strategic objectives as well. And that kind of links to the, the supply chain restructuring as well. So I mentioned before, so like the Quad and AUKUS as well are focused on, uh, you know, COVID was very obvious. There were heavy reliance on China for critical resources, um, things like masks and, and technologies and vaccines. So basically a wake-up call to have not necessarily your own manufacturing, but to be able to have a more diverse linkage of, of access to those basically daily necessities that you need um, and not just rely on one country who is not necessarily the most stable country um, in the world. I think that also happens with like the Quad and AUKUS focusing on clean energy. So a lot of those countries like the US, the UK, India, Japan uh, are focused on basically creating their own renewable energy um, manufacturing hubs and also restructuring those supply chains so that they become more resilient and I guess less sensitive to, to China and its changing political situation. So I think there's that linking of national security, economics and also um, renewable energy and in the environment all being part of that. So renewable energy and clean energy is basically part of that restructuring of the supply chains because they're seen as critical. So I think there'll be huge amounts of investments flowing out of these countries into restructuring those, those supply chains. And I suppose thinking it from the Australian perspectives, there'll be huge amounts of opportunities to basically tap into that money. Yeah, very good. And uh, I, th I thank you so much for sharing the insight and your research experience about the international collaboration on the climate energy, particularly between Austria and China. Uh, by the end of this episode, I would like you ask you um, to share a book you just read, a non-fiction book you read with our audience. Yeah, so one book that I've read in the past month or so is called The Chinese Question by Mai Nai. She's a professor at in America of history, that what I found, so it's basically the whole, uh, the narrative is the book about how focus on Australia, America and South Africa and how basically the exclusion of Chinese migrants was central to nation building and identity in those three countries um, who all had anti-Chinese basically policies and immigration restrictions all three, the, the reason for the three countries' focus was basically there was large gold mining um, opportunities. So a lot of Chinese migrants came to Australia and were treated very poorly um, for that. But the main sort of the idea of it is that not that they were passive 
victims of these states, but rather that they were central to nation building in, in all of these countries. Um, you know, they had their own political organisations and economic groups, or trade unions, um, who were able to assert their, assert their rights. The other thing that I guess is relevant to us today is how important, I guess, resources and mining has been to Australia um, and also its engagement with, with China. So in some ways for the past few hundred years, that's never, never changed. Like resource development is central to Australia and now mm-hmm. it's going through a new stage of development at the moment. Uh, regarding the immigration history, I, I know there is a lot of debate about, about that, how Chinese as an uh, early immigrant in, in early 20th century, even be, uh, before that, uh, were not fairly treated. And in the current modern time, uh, millions of Chinese study in the US and uh, other Western countries in Australia to become permanent residents, even citizens in Australia and the US. They also contribute to the society a lot. But I really thank you again for your contribution, for your insight. Yeah, thanks so much, Anya. It was great talking to you today. Yeah, take care and Dermot, and uh, see you next time. Great, talk soon. <laughs>